Hello, you are listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. My name is Jonas Cornelson. A significant aspect of this course was participating in the slaughtering of a lamb that we would then cook and eat together. Whoa, where did that come from? Well, it came from Zoe Maddies, a CMU grad and program manager for Arasha, Manitoba. Zoe is one of three voices we'll hear today on ecological grief, the heavy emotions we feel when we consider the weight of the climate crisis and our role as human beings. Is it time to have a funeral for the forest? This is part three of our So What About Climate series. And yes, it's a heavy topic. But we'll learn that hope is best found by going through grief in a meaningful way, not by trying to step around it. So stay with me here. CMU is located on Treaty 1 land in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm in Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. And the panel discussion on ecological grief that I'm covering today took place virtually with speakers from Treaty 1. Now, this event was organized by then-CMU student Carrie Miller. She's now a CMU grad. Congrats, Carrie. Carrie finished an interdisciplinary studies degree focusing on thanatology, which is the study of death. It's a dying field. I'm so sorry I said that. Carrie organized this event through Arasha, Manitoba as part of her CMU studies. It was called Ecological Grief and Exploring Hope. Now, Arasha is a Christian conservation organization with offices across Canada. They focus on research for the conservation and restoration of the natural world and environmental education for people of all ages. Their Manitoba office is actually at CMU, in the Center for Resilience on the fourth floor of the North Campus building. For those who haven't been to campus in a while, yes, there is a fourth floor in that building, and it's not just for storage anymore. Okay, so here's Carrie with a very bright and cheerful quote that she used to open the event and frame how we should think about grief in this discussion. To be human means to be fallible, to be mortal, and we are beings towards death, a phrase borrowed from Heidegger. Unfortunately, I'm inclined to say that in our North American society, we don't always know how to grieve our pain well. Instead, finding numbing agents and quick fixes. Now, I'm not saying we should get rid of medication or to celebrate painful situations. Rather, I'm wondering if there are healthier ways to acknowledge and to name our grief, to share it with others, and in doing so, begin healing from it. Okay, I said it was a bright and cheerful beginning. I lied, sorry. But that's grief. We don't get over it and go back to the way we were. We move through it, and we are transformed and healed by doing that. You'll want to hold that in mind as we keep going here. Carrie has been working with Arasha for about two years, and she's done a variety of environmental education projects. And as she explains here, this has helped her expand her own ideas on grief. Through a position running day camps, I was challenged to broaden my scope of grief to that of our natural world. It felt like Arasha was offering a new lens through which to understand our humanity and our, and our inherent connection to the earth. Through working with Arasha, I was introduced to a, di a different narrative around human mortality. One that saw human life as part of a greater circle, where death is kin to life. Take compost, for example. It is created from decaying plants and old food, food waste. Yet it is teeming with nutrients and new life. 
out of death comes new life. Now, those must have been some unique and awesome day camps. And I mean that sincerely because people of all ages need to be thinking about this stuff. At age-appropriate levels, of course. As we have separated death from life in our thinking over time, we have also separated ourselves from the earth. Here's Carrie with a bit more on why that's a problem and how it ties back to our theme of ecological grief. Unfortunately, as our society has abstracted death and numbed pain, in many ways we have become estranged from the natural world. We live in houses, isolated from the sun and the soil, blind to the cycles of the seasons and the kinship of life and death. In doing so, we have lost sight of the ways in which our earth is being exploited, consumed and mined for resources. If ecology refers to our relationship with the environment as our home, then our home is experiencing rapid destruction, often at our very own hands. So what do we do? Anxiety, despair, anger, and guilt are some of the many emotions that come flooding when I think about this. Our ecological grief allows us to process our overwhelming emotions, then to step forward and hope that our connection with the land, our home with which we belong, can be restored in new ways. As I hinted at earlier, grief is necessary for hope. Knowing what is wrong and feeling it deeply is the first step in renewing those relationships. We're going to dig deeper into that now with Marta Bunnett-Weeb, a CMU grad who is now the Peace and Advocacy Coordinator at Mennonite Central Committee, Manitoba, and also has deep roots in the practice of farming. For Marta, ecological grief is a deeply personal experience. It's as personal as taking a bite of food. Her comments on this panel came out of her love for food, both growing and eating it, and how that love is complicated by the environmental harm caused by the global food system. We begin on the farm with some wise words from a friend. And this is a quote from a friend of mine, Terry Murrell. He once said, I would rather characterize farming as a constant play between hope and despair. And in the despair, you have to be able to step away from it for a minute and see that it has shown you something that can give you hope. I think this may hold true in a larger conversation around climate change. For the sake of brevity, I will be focusing my thoughts on food and specifically the eating of food. Eating is one of the most intimate ways we are connected with the earth. We rely on the earth for daily sustenance. Often several times a day we eat. In this necessity of life, we are bound in relationship to the land, water, and creatures. Yet, too often we are unaware or inattentive to those relationships, to the detriment of our spirits and the life and well-being of the earth. Our inattentiveness to the way our food is grown leaves us ignorant of the toil our eating has on the earth. To draw an analogy for Wendell Berry, the way we eat today is like a one-night stand. We want to enjoy the meal, but we don't care to know it's past, and we won't remember it the next day. Becoming aware of the nature of the food system, as with an awareness of the changing climate, leads to the grief and despair we are here to talk about tonight. So going back a bit, I've certainly never thought about eating as a one-night stand, although any individual meal that I eat doesn't tend to last any longer than that. I think it's a good metaphor, though, in terms of the anonymity that surrounds how most people buy and eat food. 
at least most people who live in cities, which most people do. Now let's face it, I have no idea where that can of tomatoes in my pantry came from. I have no relationship with the farm worker who picked the tomatoes, the truck driver who shipped them, or even really the grocery store clerk who sold them to me. Our whole industrial system of food is designed to minimize relationships between people at different parts of the process, and even more so between people and the land that grew the food itself. So what? Even once we know how far removed we are from our food, what can we really do? As a first step, Marta recommends participating in lament, naming the relationships we know are broken as a spiritual practice that turns us toward healing. This is why lament sits within the tension of hope and despair. For in participating in the act of ecological lament, when we come to an awareness of our relationships, however severed they may be, we enter the possibility for renewing those relationships. When we come to an awareness of our own creatureliness, our own daily reliance on those relationships that provide us with food, there opens a possibility for repairing those relationships. As great as the magnitude of the climate crisis is, our response is only as great as our relationships. As Barry writes, the question that must be addressed, therefore, is not how to care for the planet, but how to care for the planet's millions of human and natural neighbors. That was another quote from Wendell Berry, the farmer philosopher we heard from earlier on One Night Stands. This quote took me in a rather more biblical direction. If you went to Sunday school, or CMU for that matter, you might remember the story often called the Good Samaritan. Jesus told this story as an answer to someone asking him, who is my neighbor? The Sunday school moral is basically that people should all be nice to each other. Every person is your neighbor, and you should help them out if they're in a bind. Good lesson. But Barry's quote reminded me that we need to go even further than that. Our neighbors aren't just human beings, but all the plants and animals, as well as the air and water that we live with on this planet and that we, of course, rely on to sustain our lives. That's one way that ecological grief and the practice of lament can transform us. It wakes us up to how fundamentally connected we are to all our neighbors. Maybe I am more connected to my can of tomatoes than I thought. Marta has done a great job of framing ecological grief in a way that affects us all. We all eat. And now that we've thought about food in general, it's time to get specific. Really specific. At the top of this episode, I played a clip from Zoe Maddie's about the slaughter of a lamb. That wasn't just for shock value. It's the way Zoe begins her story with ecological grief with a rather intense experience of one particular meal. Here she is with the details. They're mildly graphic. My journey with ecological grief began a number of years ago when I took part in a two-week intensive course on food and faith on a farm on Galliano Island off the coast of BC. A significant aspect of this course was participating in the slaughtering of a lamb 
that we would then cook and eat together as a part of our uh, final celebration. On the day of the slaughter, I can remember standing outside the barn stall watching as the shot rang out and the sheep fell. I saw its body twitching and shaking as the muscles contracted and relaxed for the last time. And then it was over. Uh, the, swift, the swiftness of it all was like a punch in the gut. And then we participated in the rest of the slaughtering process and hung the meat for the, for the rest of the week. And a week later, as we were preparing the meal and sat down together, we were forced to reckon with the fact that although eating is one of the greatest delights of life, as Norman Wurzba puts it, death is eating's steadfast accomplice. I repeat, death is eating's steadfast accomplice. Try pulling that one out at your next dinner party. And it's not just the meat eaters that we're talking about. Even vegetarian eating implicates us in death. Every time we bring a bite of food to our mouths, we are participating in this cycle, whereby all that is living emerges from the ground, is nourished by the ground, and when the time comes, returns to the ground in death. Indigenous botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer writes in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, it is the way the world works, the exchange of a life for a life, the endless cycling between my body and the body of the world. For many thousands of years, humans acknowledged and honored this cycle, seeking to never take more than they needed out of respect and understanding that their very existence depended on the gift of these plants and animals. And my experience of participating in the slaughtering of an animal was an unmistakable reminder to me that I am finite, just like the lamb. I am dependent on the gift of creation to sustain me. And one day I will also return to the soil from which I was created. It comes across as a little morbid, maybe, if you're not accustomed to thinking about your own mortality when you sit down for dinner. And I'm not saying you should make that specifically a habit. But as Zoe continues, the less we think about it, the more we tend to consume without thinking of the consequences. The experience also helped me to see that our failure to acknowledge these truths has led us to take more from the earth than is sustainable, which has led to widespread destruction and has entered us into a time of extreme biodiversity loss. The practice of ecological grief is important, especially for us in Western cultures, because it forces us to come to grips with the effect of our presence on this earth. Psychotherapist Francis Weller in his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow writes, sorrow helps us remember something long intuited by indigenous people across the planet. Our lives are intricately commingled with one another with animals, plants, watersheds, and soil. Weller writes that we all must undertake an apprenticeship with sorrow and that it's a skill and a practice that we must develop. Okay, let's take a step back here. I don't know what you expected from this podcast, but I'm willing to bet you didn't expect an apprenticeship with sorrow to be your homework assignment. 
and I'm also not sure if you would have thought to call sorrow, or grief, a skill. I hadn't. But it makes sense. All the way back at the beginning, Carrie Miller basically said our society isn't good at grief. How do you get better at something you're not good at? That's a rhetorical question, of course. You practice. You learn. You keep trying. And when we think of grief only as an emotion, we assume it's something we should just feel. Something we have little, if any, control over. But when we think of it as a practice, like lament that we talked about earlier, it's something that we can work at, even if it feels awkward at first. Now, I introduced Zoe earlier as the program manager for Arasha, Manitoba, but she is also a leader in the Wild Church Winnipeg community. Like Arasha, Wild Church is a national group with local chapters. If you're feeling stuck for how you might start your apprenticeship with sorrow, groups like Wild Church are good to check out. And we're going to finish our discussion today with the story of a ritual that helped the members of Wild Church Winnipeg make their ecological grief something tangible and something they all held together. It's not quite a forest funeral, but it's moving in that direction. We held a um, Easter Friday or Good Friday vigil uh, out at Omens Creek Park. If you're not familiar with Omens Creek Park, it's a grassy space at the bottom of a slope where Omens Creek flows into the Assiniboine River. It's near a pedestrian bridge, as well as some of Winnipeg's busiest traffic thoroughfares and shopping malls. A stark contrast for meditating on ecological grief. We were gathered distance, but still together, and we participated in something called the um, stone ritual, where we um, gathered items from around us um, and spoke aloud our feelings and our emotions and our griefs and together with standing out there with all creation with the geese flying and honking and the water flowing by us uh, we mourned the losses that we are feeling and we allowed the, that those feelings to move into the items and um, put them into a bowl full of water allowing the earth and the water to hold those emotions um, and then we took that water and those items and we dumped them out into back into the earth to be transformed into something nourishing. And there's not a lot of times in our life where we're allowed to speak about grief and speak those feelings. And so to share them with other people was really important and to share them on Easter on good Friday with Jesus, who knows the most potent of sorrows as well. I wanted to end here because this story has an important practical message. We do not need to bear our grief alone. Being part of a supportive community is a healthy way for us to make sense of our grief and sometimes just to make it through the day. And faith can be a really important component of that for a lot of people as well. So please, find your people. Don't do it alone. Special thanks this month to Carrie Miller and Arasha Manitoba for putting this event together and giving me permission to use it in the show. For more on Arasha's great work, you can visit arasha.ca. That's A-R-O-C-H-A dot C-A. And as always, you can get in touch with me and the show on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast. I'd love to hear from you. We're back on December 1st with the final episode in our So What About Climate series. 
featuring some of the current climate-related work by CMU faculty and alumni. Thanks for listening. I'm Jonas Cornelson, and I'll talk to you again soon.